1: Hello, Janine.
0: Hey, Evelyn. Hey, listeners.
1: So today we are interviewing Adam Wilbreck, AIA. He is a co-founder at Concert. And this episode, we are really going to be exploring a lot of different things, a crossover between architecture, entrepreneurship, and technology. And we're going to be taking a look at blockchain specifically and its applications to the industry. I think this is going to be a really interesting case study because the story behind Concert is that it was established as an independent software company that was built and funded by some of the largest AE firms in the U.S. So these firms together, obviously, represent hundreds and millions of dollars of professional fees and billions of dollars in delivered products. Ultimately, as a consortium or as a group, they were looking to identify meaningful a meaningful space to invest their money in areas that would also move the profession forward. And this is the first product that came out of that endeavor.
0: And it might be worth mentioning that Concert is a SaaS offering or software as a service. And SaaS, for those who don't know, is a method of software delivery that allows data to be accessed from any device with an internet connection and a web browser. So this is, to us, like an operational piece of Managing practice.
1: Yeah, I would say another way to talk about SaaS is when Adobe moved away from when Adobe and AutoCAD and all the software pro- uh, producers moved away from issuing DVDs and CDs and moved to the cloud. They essentially are now all SaaS operators.
0: Let's also briefly talk about the large firm roundtable because we mentioned that quite a bit in this episode.
1: So the origins of Concert grew out of conversations that were actually happening at the large firm roundtable. The AIA large firm roundtable is a kind of thought leadership group that meets yearly and has the capacity to undertake research on their own. Adam is a part of the CIO group, but the CEOs and the chief people officers also have similar working groups that meet on a regular basis.
0: Adam is a principal at Cunningham Group Architecture and a co-founder of Concert a registered architect and specialist in both building and design technologies. And he is also part of the AIA CIO Large Firm Roundtable, as well as the AEC IT Leaders Group and the University of Minnesota Consortium for Research Practices.
1: Let's cut to the interview.
2: Well, first and foremost, um, I am a registered architect. I've been practicing for about 30 years. I currently live in Minnesota, but my career got started out in Los Angeles, California, uh, where I attended ARC for my master's degree in architecture. Over the 20 of the 30 years I've practiced, I've worked in all kinds of uh, marketplaces from multifamily housing to themed entertainment I uh, had a wonderful time when I worked for a very brief time, but it was very intense at uh, Frank Gehry's office working on uh, finishing the contract documents for Disney Hall. That was a fun one. Did over 200 hours in two weeks. Oh, wow. Uh, i that one out. Um, that's no that's not
1: the fun part of that. No,
2: no I, I think it, it was fun. Uh, IDP called me and said, there's no way you did these hours. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I said, why not? And they said, you would have had to work on the weekends to get these kind of hours. I was like, yes, I did. <laughs> um, also had an extraordinary experience working with Disney Imagineering on uh, the Disney's California Adventure. Oh, Park. that's so cool. And seeing the rigor um, that they bring to design and just all the different disciplines and creative people brought to bear on these projects. And also seeing probably a glimpse of the future of uh, building operations and management because they they have paint samples from the 1960s sitting on file because they, they're responsible for restoring finishes that have aged, you know, through generations. So it's it's been fantastic. Uh, but uh, after 20 years, and as we were coming out of the last downturn, uh, Cunningham Group, the firm uh, where I'm a principal at, uh, we realized that our technology wasn't really aligned with our practice. I'm sure we had software, but we, it was being underutilized. And we didn't know why we were buying things Revit. We'd been on Revit for a few years, but we didn't even know why we were on Revit. We were still creating the same old paper documentation. So I took over that role. And, and then shortly thereafter, uh, there, uh, this tremendous program at the University of Minnesota led by Renee Chang. Uh, which is basically a research consortium that paired academics, uh, students, and professional firms on topics. So we would get a student and an academic and we our firm would pick the topic and it was a great on-ramp to bring research into our practice. So I ended up having this funky title of knowledge, uh, chief knowledge officer, uh, which involved technology and research and bringing those two together uh, actually, was a re- it was a really good marriage. Computational design, all of a sudden, when you tie it to a research project, it makes sense. The, re- the algorithms you develop are born from a deeper understanding of the problem set because you've researched it. So that's really brought me to where I am today, which is exploring through research to find the sticky problems out there that we can start applying what an architectural education brings to the table. It's not about great design for clients per se. It's a design education is much broader, ideally much more entrepreneurial and much more exploratory uh, instead of being bound to these fee-based services and client satisfaction. Um, Our licenses have nothing to do with client satisfaction. They're about health, self, health, (laughs) safety, welfare of society. So that's a much different value proposition that that's, you know, a state is giving you a license to maintain three very big things
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, you know, their responsibilities, but I think there are also opportunities to expand our agency and where we can go with this profession that is changing dramatically.
0: I know we want to get into talking about your business, but I have to segue back to <laughs> something you already touched on, um, which is this transition that I think most firms have kind of had to go through either willingly or unwillingly, which was when technology started pushing the industry forward. You know, there were a lot of firms jumping into using Revit on projects, but they didn't quite have that process figured out yet. And so I'm curious from your standpoint, like around how that's transitioned from those early days of being disjointed to now where you, you have an entire research division and knowledge division focused on improving and making these projects more technologically advanced in addition to doing architecture?
2: Well, the, the transition really, in my opinion, boils down to changing the fundamentals of design. Um, and it's not really so much changing as adding. Um, early in my career, the senior designers, what made them the senior designer outside of just basic talent was their ability to apply both their experience and intuition to the project. And what's happened in the 20th century, or I'm sorry, 21st century now is the, our ability to access data has just expanded obviously with the maturity of the internet, but also saw, you know, developments such as GIS uh, makes this information not only accessible, but also manageable. Through business intelligence platforms like Power BI, things like that, you can start taking this massive amount of data and finding insights on projects, not only contextually but also looking into the various, say, the industry that you, you might be serving, whether it's retail or restaurants or multifamily housing. Uh, a, lo- a lot of firms say we're your trusted expert, and so the trust now comes from additional resources, it comes from these insights, and and ultimately research should form the basis of it, so you're not approaching with bias, but as objectively as possible. So you can come to a client or attract a client, per se, based on this added value that you can bring to the project or these added insights.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's data and everything that we're modeling and creating these days.
2: There absolutely is. You know, GIS for me really blew the doors open with all the data sets that you can access. Um, A foundational moment for me was when I was uh, walking in Washington, D.C. with Dave Gilmore, who's the CEO of Design Intelligence, and we just happened to be walking by the Department of Commerce. And uh, if I recall correctly, his education is in economics and religion. And he looked up at this big temple building and he said, ah, Department of Commerce, this is where I get most of my information. And that tripped a lever in my head. It's like, okay, this here's the gentleman who's representing our profession, who's approaching it from purely data. But it's data that's even outside of what designers use. I mean, he's looking in macro contexts and what that information and what the implications of that can bear upon our profession.
1: So I want to bring the conversation back to this idea of opportunity. Data is definitely one of those opportunities. But you are in the process of launching concert to a larger audience. Can you tell us a little bit about what concert is and kind of how it came how it came to be? And when we talked the last time you mentioned CDs going away, like the seventy percent of profit margin or whatever. Oh. <laughs> like seventy like that quote, the seventy percent or, or the thirty percent of um your work going away and and, and needing to find needing to find a solution to kind of even backfill that.
2: Yeah. The, the existential equation that architects face, and I'm sure people have different flavors of this one is that the commodification of architecture or the product we create uh, is effectively tied to downward pressures to the point that we're being asked to do more for less. And by virtue of technologies, we're offering to do more for less as well at the same time are built in by virtue of BIM and CAD and, We've been developing more and more complexity into our projects, yet the fees and the value from that complexity haven't followed. On top of that, we're looking at effectively a very interested capital market out there since 2017 when McKinsey published a report, and I'm sure it wasn't the first one, but it showed architecture and construction as a $13 trillion industry that had zero productivity growth over generations. I mean... (laughs) So, yeah, that's a big, shiny object to someone who's looking who has capital investment dollars. And that followed through in 2019. In the fourth quarter of 2019, a full quarter of all capital investment made by venture capital was put into the prop tech AECO marketplace. So, I mean, that that's substantial. But what that means for us traditional architects or to that profession, um, some people even refer to it as like the gentleman's profession of architecture is... You know, we, we like to say disruption, but that's not really the case. No one's going to come and disrupt architecture the same way taxis were disrupted by Uber. It's it's not that simple. We're dealing with far more complexity, so it's more of a decomposition of services. Little bits and pieces being eroded here and there where we would normally take a fee for that. Someone else has come in and created a whole service around it that can... You know it's boundless basically that moves into the operations of the building which is a place that architects tend not to go right now that's you know those are longer term relationships than a design and construction relationship so so that's really the context so if if we're looking at these services especially more in the on the construction side we're going to see less and less claimable revenue from construction documents, even design development, especially as contractors come and work with us as well. At that, why, why draw it twice? Why should an architect draw a detail? If the person who's actually going to build that component of the building, why don't they draw it with us on a BIM, in a cloud environment, on a common data environment? So that's the downward pressure. So as you're getting squeezed into a box, which is going to be just front-end design, that's just going to be less revenue, less capital for your for you so the question is is do you just allow for the compression to happen or do you find escape valves and the data is really the escape valve because these building information models they're the synthesis of a lot of data inputs a lot of inspiration a lot of intuition a lot of experience there's value beyond just the construction of the building there's there's value in these models and in this data that could be leveraged somewhere else and that's the opportunity that's on the table right now that I think for for our profession is to explore these escape valves and see what we can derive from our embodied knowledge and from these things we synthesize from this knowledge and create new products and services.
1: Right. Create more value. Mm
2: -hmm. Right.
1: So was this ultimately, I guess, and I take it and I could be wrong that this was a conversation that is actually a very lively conversation within the context of the large firm roundtable, or maybe not. Senior oh, no, reaction?
2: It, it, no, it is. It is, and what's funny is, it's and and I won't speak for the Wad firm pr- roundtable in total, but it's you know, the, the common enemy. Call it an enemy, just because we give them a lot of money every year is Autodesk. So because Autodesk is defining very well in some cases how we work, we feel that we can't get away from them, or we you know they're the ones boxing us in and eroding our service model. That's all well and fine, but you know Autodesk does make some really great products. Um, BIM 360 probably saved us in the pandemic. If it happened two years ago, uh, we'd have a lot more people out of work, I, I believe. But from that source, though, it's just the people who are paying attention shouldn't, aren't drawing their ire at Autodesk per se, but seeing that technology. And people who are thinking much more objective way about what the real value is of each element of design and construction and creating new services around that, you know, what are, what are we going to do? What can architects do to, one way to put it, sort of reclaim our profession, mm-hmm, right? Re- reinstate the value? I mean, and by virtue of our licensure and health safety welfare, that's one thing where we have a stake that nobody else can claim. So that's the opportunity in essence. So um, back to the McKinsey report, digitalization was really seen as the major escape valve. So uh, with digitalization, we realize all kinds of benefits, much lower risk because you have an explicit model showing that tile turning the corner versus a drawing that suggests that it might be that turns into a claim. Um, Obviously through clash detection, things like that, you're, you're removing... The interpretation side of documents. You're removing and making, uh, removing interpretation and effectively making things much more explicit. So what the Large Firm Roundtable understands is that digitalization is essential. And how do we get there? Do we do it on the backs of other large software companies? Perhaps not. Um, you know, if, if they're doing such a good job taking away revenue from us, what can we do for ourselves? is the question and, and we're also inspired by all the students coming in who are doing computational design we're able to solve problems by writing our own algorithms by taking data and writing our own solutions you know and if you look at companies like hypar who are looking at leveraging all of these algorithms and cataloging them and making them accessible similar to github all of a sudden the agency of the architect starts looking a little bit more like a computer programmer but we're using spatial data instead so what can we do with that? So as I'm implying here, there's much, more, many more questions that start coming up of what's possible through digitalization and what investment and agency could architects make to be a part of that new landscape versus just being users of the software.
1: Let's focus a little bit on concert and kind of talk about the entrepreneurial side of architecture. I think the, um, not the disruption, but the, you know, you didn't. You didn't say decentralization either. You said um,
2: decomposition.
1: Yeah. So I've always struggled with the fact, and as as many years as I've been involved in the AIA with with architects complaining about everything that we're giving away. So in a, in essence, decomposition, mm-hmm. but not reclaiming any of that value. So how did you guys land on concert? What was its first iteration, and and what does it look like now?
2: Well, concert came from looking at just a simple question of we have all the tools for digitalization. Why haven't we done it? You know, it should be happening right now. And, but we're still signing paper. And then we have a contractor who comes and asks for, Hey, can we have your BIM model? Can you give it to us on the backside here? And there's effectively a black market economy on the digital data. And we sign these wonderful waivers or we make them sign these waivers that say, well, you know, indemnifying us of any risk tied to these digital artifacts. So the question, the fundamental question is how do we flip it? How do we make the digital data, the contract data, the instrument of service and make the documents supplemental?
0: Mm, Interesting.
2: And so one realization was, is that there's no way to sign a BIM model. And so that was the birth of concert was exploring To find ways is, is there a way that we could apply a digital signature to data? And that quickly expanded because we realized architects just aren't delivering Revit models. There's, well, there's also Bentley models and there's also Rhino models. And then there's also SketchUp models. And there's also pictures of napkin sketches. I mean, anything you can draw and sign can be an instrument of service. So why not look at the full expanse of data and how we could deliver that especially as we're moving into an age of robotics and automated construction. If there's a bricklaying robot who wrote the code for what the brick pattern is, why couldn't the architect write that? And why couldn't they make that instrument of service and sign it? So that, that was the initial problem. How do we sign that? And that led us to blockchain, which for a lot of people is a bit of a punchline saying it's a solution looking for a problem. But in this case, uh, we went out to Silicon Valley and we met with uh, experts in blockchain and pitched this idea. And they came back and said, yeah, that's actually a really good application. So with that, concert was effectively born in concept. But then we needed seed funding. Right.
1: So before we go on yeah. too far, just because I think a lot of our, our listeners you know, Troxel's podcast on our network probably has people that are more familiar with blockchain and the application. Sure. But can you just at least give a more elementary explanation of of yep. what blockchain is and, and exactly the, the value that's inherent between this digitization and what blockchain provides?
2: Sure, sure. So blockchain, at its very simplest level, is just a ledger that exists in cyberspace. But it's a ledger that cannot be changed once you put an entry into a ledger. basically you cannot wipe that ledger because that ledger is copied across the globe at least in a public blockchain ledger. So all of a sudden a thousand different we call them nodes have copies of this record. so your ability to change it in one place might be possible, but you can't change it in all places. Now what's fun about blockchain is that when you add the next item in the ledger to the blockchain is that it is mathematically tied to the previous item. So as you build these blocks, and as they're tied mathematically to each other, you can't just take one out of the middle because it actually blows up the equation and the math of the whole thing. So it becomes even more secure in that concept. And where it ties nicely to architecture is, is that we don't create a sheet, a BIM model. We actually create a sheet, and then we improve upon it. We revise it. Uh, we're not done with our, these artifacts we create until the construction is done. So there's a lot of value in knowing what, in this case, we're using data files, whether it's a PDF or BIM spreadsheet, whatever. There's value in knowing at any given time, um, and there is a timestamp with this, I should add. So it's not only the item and where it is in the stack, but it's when that item was added to the stack. Right. So say we put out a BIM file in July 15th of this summer and they poured a slab on July 17th and here we are 100 days later, that slab is curled, we can go back and say this is the exact file or this is the exact PDF regarding that slab or this is the exact data that was in effect when that slab was poured. So from a risk standpoint or from an insurance standpoint, it becomes very easy to point at an item on the ledger and say this is what was real at that time, this is what was available at that time. So that's kind of a half-handed way of talking about blockchain. There's a lot of complexity to it. But at the end of the day, it is just a list with a name and a timestamp attached to it.
0: I'm curious like if putting the emphasis back on the model versus the 2D drawings changes the way you guys manage and, and the way that the emphasis is placed on the team that's producing uh, the model? Is there more attention towards different things than previously? From my experience working in a firm, there was so much time spent, you know, marking up drawings and such. But like when it's a 3D element and you're really emphasizing the model, what does that shift in terms of the communication around the actual project?
2: Where the shift is uh, probably the essential communication is that don't break the model to make the drawing. And that's the biggest problem right now. Is because the drawings have primacy, the model can be compromised to create the best drawing. Right. right. Um, in the case of when you're building, when you're solely focusing on the primacy of the of the modeled content, you're going to make much more conscious decisions about what is modeled and what the, what its purpose is for communication, for the construction. And then if things are really taken into a broader context, you're also loading additional data into that model. So there's the visual information, but then there is all of this parameter information as as well as uh, metadata attached to any object. And it might be regarding its warranty, it might be its delivery date, it might be serial numbers, it doesn't matter. You can effectively embed this massive quantity of data that opens up the value propositions downstream because this model is so much more than just the data used for construction
1: that makes sense. I think architects are always trying to make their drawings prettier in spite Mm -hmm. of the model. Um, (laughs) I just want to refocus back on this whole idea of concert and blockchain and where you guys uh, are as a business.
2: Sure. As of last week, we just put our commercial website online. So that's getconcert.com which is great. We've moved out of beta into receiving paying customers. It's a SaaS software. Um, So it takes place. It works completely online. There's no installed software. Um,
1: Just because I've been seeing so many complaints about SaaS (laughs) from our industry right now, I guess, why did you guys decide to, to use that model?
2: Uh, for the most part, because we're a public registry, and the functions that we use are very simple, uh, which involves just scanning files. We don't actually upload data. We just scan the file locally on your machine. I, I know we're, we're a less technical audience here, so but, uh, but because the files never leave your computer, um, the web browser was actually all the software we needed to get the data we need to un- to basically fingerprint your data and assemble it in our in our database.
1: Oh, okay. I was more going around the, I think people have been complaining about the SaaS model in our industry as a business because they want to pay a one and done fee versus then paying a reoccurring fee. Um. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it is the trope that the internet should be free and SaaS right. are perceived as being functions of the internet. I mean, licensing models are certainly complex and ours is um, is actually transactional by users. And that, that's actually fairly different for a SaaS is that you know you, you basically pay for every file that you decide to memorialize on the blockchain. Um, okay. So I think we're innovative in that way by being regre- in a way regressive or going back to the old way of <laughs> um of economics. Uh, but uh but it but it makes the costs very predictable and um what you're not paying for someone not using it effectively.
1: Where did the funds ultimately come for you guys to get through get through Alpha and to get to where you are sure. now? And then where does Concert go next in terms of funding and growth?
2: It's, it's interesting, um, probably a little context there is that making software is hard. Um, it's, it's one thing to generate an algorithm or a series of algorithms and basically market as a product, but to create, as they say, actual shrink wrap software, um, it, it, it does take a lot of money. It takes a lot of resources, takes a lot of time, especially if you want to get into a marketplace and perform what I've heard called unnatural growth. So it's one thing just to create a piece of software, see if you can get some friends and family to try it out and it might grow by word of mouth. But to create something that grows very fast and has an engine attached to it that puts it in hearts of minds of lots of people very quickly. You do need significant investment. So in this, this case, we wanted to be, it, the product started at Cunningham Group, but we knew very quickly that we were going to need this capital and to turn it into something else. So this is where we, we basically embraced the rhetoric of the large firm roundtable and asked them, hey, do you want to, does anyone here want to invest in this concept? And put us on the path to digitalization, remove the obstacle to digitalization of our practice, and lo and behold, uh, we received seed funding from a number of firms, and quickly converted the software from being a Cunningham product to being a standalone company. And we basically went and installed a CEO who has launched many software companies and hardware companies ahead before. Uh, we have engineers that have done not only professional software, but also have blockchain expertise. So basically, architects got out of the way really fast um, and spoke with their dollars instead of with their sort of can-do attitude that we're going to do this. Um, instead, they we put the experts in charge. And uh, that's been to a great benefit.
0: Right. And I just want to mention that it looks like based on your website, you've got HKS, Cunningham Group, HGA. Gould Evans, Gresham Smith, BWBR, are using this platform. Yes. So there's been a early buy-in into the need and the use of the um, platform, and I guess we're curious, like how the company has pivoted since, you know, from that early idea that everyone bought into to where you are now.
2: Yeah. So the the early idea was just. Signatures, but we realized through speaking with the firms, even the firms listed on, their, on our website, there's other resistance factors to digital delivery, and a lot of it ties around trust. So, we encounter people like, Why would I give people my digital data? It's like giving them the recipe to Coke or my source code for my software, and, and that's actually not true. Um, there are legal precedents for copyright and such, so theft is probably much more, is much more of a concern than it actually merits. But nevertheless, uh, what we do create is our copyright, is our intellectual property. And nothing says this, these things we create have to be used solely for construction as well. So by virtue of blockchain in this registry, we, we also basically have an IP registration tool in that we are saying that this firm created this data at this time. So now we have this added value proposition in that where a, a company can say, not only is the data, was created at this time, but it's mine. Mm-hmm. And it offers opportunities to even transfer ownership of that data in the future. The other opportunity we saw is that every time you do write a file to blockchain, because you're paying for it, it's actually a significant event you're saying that you're memorializing that data, saying this was released for the purposes of pricing or for-
1: You're not writing it to blockchain every time you hit Control S on your machine is what you're saying.
2: Correct, correct. You no, know, you're, 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 you're databasing it and then you're ultimately taking the files that you really want to uh, memorialize and those will get imprinted on the blockchain. But then all of a sudden you have a record of your deliverable. You have this trigger event that says, uh, I have fulfilled part of the contract. You can even say, "Hey, insurance company, I'm delivering digitally." Does that have value? So it it begins to transform the meaning of when we create this data. Because in the past, we would just throw it over the wall. Like, here you go, we made this, and we'd we'd undermine ourselves of what the value is. I mean, there's hundreds and thousands of hours that go into this into these models. Even the the families that are in a Revit are. Right. are thousands of hours. So we we shouldn't be undermining the value of what we create. And by memorializing it this way too, we can start recording uh, its use and why it's used and gaining insights from that as well. Um, And and on the other side, because we want to share data, the industries and people who are receiving their data can now check it and say, is this the actual data? Because the second you give it to someone, the first thing they're going to do is open it and change it so to speak. (laughs) If I have a bricklaying robot and I have this data and I'm about to start laying bricks, I want to make sure I've got the latest version. If I'm a company like Doxel and I'm scanning a construction site every day, I'm going to want to know that the BIM model I'm comparing the construction against is the latest model. So trust becomes a big part of data exchange going forward. And we think concert's going to play a pivotal role in that trust mechanism.
0: I can imagine that this is helpful to handing off a model to a, a GC, particularly because I I know there's been a lot of conversations with the firms that I've worked at between exchanging models so that that can help with their team on site. Mm-hmm. What are some of the lessons that you guys have learned in developing your startup? And, and what can you share with our audience in terms of how you've grown the business?
2: So the the lessons we've learned really come just from listening for the most part Um, in most of it's been just expansion uh, beyond our initial idea. I think everything starts with a good idea, but then in order to be more than that idea, you need to find, you know, you, you, you need to find a place for it. That's basically winning hearts and minds in a way that people see the problem and see the, how it resolves that problem. So you, you have to expand into those, those worry places. What are the sticky problems people have? And so uncovering those has been—it's been been a fun part, but it's also made for these great aha moments for us. Of we, we created this, but it actually also does this. And we've <laughs> almost—we've actually had to contain ourselves because where blockchain naturally leads to smart contracts, and that's where most blockchain companies start—is with this notion of smart contracts, and they start with the financial side, which is intensely complicated. So, you know, we see opportunities there, but at this point it's like, we just can't go there and that, that'll that be for someone else effectively. So, you know, that that's, it's as much as finding where you can go, but also knowing what your limits are.
0: Yeah. There's value and constraint
1: as an entrepreneur.
2: There is. There is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you've... Um... You started with the original seed funding from the large firm. Is is the large firm going to dip their toe a second round? Or are you guys going to actually look out uh, for venture capital? Where do you take it from here?
2: So, so all options are on the table right now. Um, venture capital is certainly an option for um, our next round of funding, uh, whether that's Series A or um, some other machination of funding. Um, there's also private resources that could be gone to. Um, Tech pension funds are, are an example, and that's been a real lesson for me as an architect, as I had no idea how any of this works, and I'm probably still portraying it in a somewhat amateur way. But you know, funding can come from anywhere. There's just different, you know, there's different strings attached to that funding depending on where you go. So, other architecture firms are certainly a possibility, um, um, and not just architecture, engineering, design, professional design is certainly out there. There is a there's engineering markets in there that we hadn't initially considered that uh, have come looking for us. So we, we have opportunities there, uh, private investors, but otherwise in there is venture capital. And there are certainly venture funds in there that are are solely dedicated to the AEC space and are actively funding.
1: So the last time we talked, you actually had talked about You know, now that you've been in this on this side of the entrepreneurial space for a while Mm -hmm. with concert and you've done a lot of listening, you know, you've you kind of had your pulse on how build tech, um, the money in that's that's coming towards build tech now has been evolving. So can you talk to us about how you've seen that evolved in the last three to five uh five years? And sure. And I guess the follow-up question would be, you know what is the potential for architects to capitalize on all of this?
2: right I mean I, I think I can best talk by example where you see these firms started by um, in some cases uh, people who have just graduated from college or grad school like test fit i o where they they've just seen this small part of our industry that they could take advantage of and automate where they as interns, they suffered to do something over days and they, they knew in their back pocket that we could do this much faster. And that that's at the seed level of what what venture capital is looking for is these automations that actually uncover a much larger need and a much larger a much larger value stream. So now now all of a sudden you don't have to hire an architect to do fit planning. A developer can do it by themselves. So that's a big deal. The, the work still gets done. It just gets done, but through a different agency.
1: Yeah. And then I think we mentioned, you know, a few years ago, it was actually really hard for me to find like a, a VC that's interested in, in the build tech space. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's definitely more interest because of what you mentioned at the top with this being like a $13 trillion industry with no growth um, product of activity growth. Um, but I think it's worth mentioning things like fit too. At least those individuals came out of architecture school. A lot of what I'm seeing happen in the build tech space, it's engineers. Not even structural or civil engineers. We're talking computer engineers that are that are seeing opportunities and really capitalizing in these areas without architects. So, yeah. I think this is an area that we need to step into sooner rather than later. If we talk about kind of reclaiming some of that that space or taking back some of that that value,
2: without a doubt. I mean, the the, the amount of value that's accessible out there um, doesn't really cause anyone to respect any boundaries that, you know, are, are, uh, are psychological anyhow. Um, why wouldn't you go into this space and, and see what you can derive, um, without a doubt. Um, interestingly, they, they tend to be focused more on the construction space just because maybe it's more understandable probably because it's more repeatable as, as well as, uh, construction is, has a lot more capital effectively. Um, it, construction tends to be financed money where design is first money. It's it's cash. It's not financed. So that's one thing that's been leading to our downward pressures, but I don't think it excludes us from taking advantage of this space and, and bringing new things to bear.
0: I think there's a lot of opportunity because there's so many designers I know that are working in these Revit models or on projects and seeing the inefficiencies that you were referencing at the beginning of the episode. And there's a lot of room for innovation around some of those solutions. And and then I know firms need help in terms of learning how to adopt this technology too. So I see a role for architects and designers to step into that. And one of my questions I was going to ask was about your team and just wondering what the composition is in terms of architects versus Mm -hmm. uh, engineers that you had to hire in terms of helping you develop this? Mm
2: -hmm. So uh, software development is, I mean, your seed funding is never a lot. You're always very lean. So I'm the only architect on the team um, and it's a part-time role. Uh, Otherwise we have uh, two full-time software engineers. We have a product expert uh, slash blockchain expert. And then we have a CEO who has tremendous expertise in capital raise, basically and, and start and running the company.
1: You can count that on one hand pretty much. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes. and yeah, so you, you know you, you have to choose your resources wisely as well because you are limited, but you need to you know speed is necessary.'ve uh, This is my first experience with agile development too, which has been fun because I see a lot of analogs with design. Um, there's a lot of similarities in the process, so it's, it's actually been a very smooth relationship uh, because change is natural. Um, An architect is very familiar with change, and it isn't seen as a negative, so I think that's made for a, very, for a great team dynamic, and then there's also lots of notes to take back to project teams and how you can design on, on more of a design cycle, so to speak, or yeah. do, do add sprints to your, uh, your design cycle.
0: Evelyn and I have talked a lot about that, wanting to bring some of those ideas over to mm-hmm. uh, project design processes.
2: Yeah, I think there's a book to be written there because I've looked right and left and up and down for uh, someone who has, can take these lean and agile methodologies and apply them to the design side and, and you know, herd the cats using these, uh, <laughs> these concepts because I, I think they'd actually be very, uh, very attracted to it. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah. Truth be told, the hybrid playbook, I think by the end of twenty twenty one will become the Agile Practice Playbook. So that's where I'm I'm hoping to (laughs) head head with that one.
2: We'll have to interview you then.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um so back to this notion of health safety and well welfare and A lot of architects that I've been talking to, especially in the commercial space, has been focused on wellness, looking at the future of work within commercial and like the workplace within commercial interiors. So, like, where do you think there are other opportunities for architecture firms or architects in in general that we should we should be steering Mm -hmm. towards?
2: Yeah, wellness is a, I mean, especially focusing on wellness, um, it's in the age of a pandemic um, wellness is certainly twisting from what its original interpretation was and most americans don't know that you know wellness is actually a huge global industry um i saw a stat in 2017 it was uh, 4.2 trillion dollars globally and that was before we were even talking about it Uh, but then the well standard came into play and which is a very interesting document because it is talking about how space and place is used and what its outcome is on health. But wellness now, with in a post-pandemic, is creates a situation where it's maybe a little more explicit, where people might want to have this relationship with the building to understand how it's affecting them by virtue of the occupancy. So this is where sensors are highly underexploited at this point. The sensor market is. Coming on strong. Um, Schneider Electric is especially interesting with how they're positioning positioning themselves, but also talking to designers about what the role of sensors is going to be. And then, so there's this real need for this, I would think, for these edge conditions for this interface between building and occupant. And you might not even need to be in the building, the interface could be in a service model. You know, hotels are. I know I checked into one hotel at one time when I landed. I got a text saying, You know, welcome to Las Vegas. What drink do you want waiting for you in your room? I mean, that, that's kind of an example of it. <laughs> um, you're driving home, your multifamily living unit kicks on the hot water heater or starts warm, warming it up because it knows you're coming home. So there's these interactions, but there's also by virtue of air quality sensors, understanding lighting levels and its effect. You could start having a dashboard effectively for the environment that you're in and understanding it not only in the present, but over time. So, you know, and it's easy to think of domestic living conditions, but say you worked in an auto shop, you might want to know that over the past six hours, you've been experiencing decibel levels that are damaging your ears and you've been inhaling These strange compounds, (laughs) you know, that are, (laughs) you know, might might not make you dizzy today, but might have long term effects downstream. So, you know, the pandemic has revealed, and I've seen some data points, such as that uh, high pollution transmits the pathogens much more readily than uh, fresh air. Um, So. Uh, having, I think that having that information would be incredibly valuable. So I think that's the next stage of wellness and and what it requires is the architect's Mm -hmm. talents to understand sensor technology and the applications of sensors in the design so that that interface between occupant and building uh, can be amplified.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, concert was established by seed funding from from the large firm roundtable, So from people that are listening now that are from small or medium mm-hmm. sized firms, um, you know, is there, is there a mindset shift that they can make? Like what, what recommendations do you have for them in terms of being more entrepreneurial and what are potentially some first steps that they can take?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I interpret that question as sort of, what is this? What can we do? Who do we go see? Who do we talk to? And, and, you know, the people I admire and have come to admire and and the last eight years, especially um, a lot of them are very frustrated with architects, honestly, or they are frustrated architects. I don't know how many presentations I've sat in where someone says that they're a reformed architect or a reformed engineer. I think we recognize our own pathology of complacency or just feeling stuck inside the guardrails because of our contracts, because of the service model that hasn't changed in so long. Um, We just got to end that. I mean, we we have, again, all this embodied talent and access. There's so, you know, in the age of the Internet, you can access expertise, you can access capital. Um, Capital is especially interesting now because you can access funds that are tied to agendas, especially something sustainable. One extension of the blockchain was an exploration of cryptocurrency in that, Mm -hmm. you know, you may have heard of Bitcoin or Ethereum, but there's thousands of cryptocurrencies out there. You can set one up tomorrow if you want to. But there's one that was introduced earlier this month that Steve Wozniak's attached to it. But what's fascinating about that is that it allows for you to invest in environmental projects you know for a couple bucks if you want to get if you only want to you know put whatever's in your wallet right now into it and then see a return on it Uh, what if the social coin was tied you know or architects orchestrated a some sort of social coin for even a project for developing a school or affordable housing in a neighborhood where anyone could contribute and get a return if there's any profits on it it's you know on one hand it's it's no different than crowdfunding, but because of, by virtue of the blockchain technologies, the value is absolutely known. So fascinating places we could go if we just have the imagination to go in there and then hopefully go deep.
0: So, Evelyn, Adam talked about a lot of things in this episode. You've got a little bit of tech. You've got some uh, entrepreneurship in there. And you and he's definitely also talking about how to disrupt the industry. I want to hear more about why you wanted to invite him on.
1: Yeah, so, you know, build tech, CRE tech is a growing space that I really think the industry needs to keep their eye on. The AEC industry contributes 13% to the world's global GDP. So that's nearly a $13 trillion market by 2022. I believe Adam said this too. That's In the eyes of investors and opportunists out there and entrepreneurs out there, really, an opportunity not only for them, but for architects to do some good in the world and really make more money, increase their value through new products and services.
0: Yeah, Adam talked a lot about a shift in value proposition, which I think was really to the point about where this is heading. Uh, we're thinking about the business model of architecture differently. And by thinking about where the value offering comes in allows us to start challenging the traditional practice model and looking at redesigning it. Um, so he's, he's been talking a lot about, uh, expanding our agency and where we can go with this profession.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, whether it's practice being disrupted, as the title of the podcast is, um, Adam prefers to view it as a, a recomposition of the profession. I just hope that, you know, my biggest takeaway other than maybe a very small introduction to blockchain. Is that there is a lot of movement happening in this space that is going to be affecting all areas of how we do business. And we can either let that happen to us or we can find a way to engage. I think one of the interesting things, you know, and we've talked to individuals like Mo last season who came out of architecture as an architecture background and launched his own SaaS company that's definitely one way to do it. Uh, another thing that Adam has done with concert is he acknowledged that, you know, and the group that he's working with acknowledged that they are the problem solvers. They've identified this problems, but they're, they're not the ones to, to ultimately come up with the solution. So they hired out a CEU. So I, I don't think that architects are going to necessarily be the solution to all, but I think we can, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that aren't necessarily backed or founded by architects that are seeing opportunities in the building industry. So we need to see those opportunities and seize them, whether it's starting something ourselves or getting the financial support we need to help somebody else step in and and be a thought partner or a thought leader there. Right. I know a lot
0: of people are concerned when they're thinking about fees, about this perpetual race to the bottom on services for fees. And this is a way to shift that conversation to take a little bit more power back around how do we start design services? And when we start to think about tech startups, there's a very real possibility to shift the service model.
1: Yeah. And it was interesting. I don't think he alluded to it in this conversation, but I was talking to him previously, you know, and the large firm roundtable acknowledges this and they are, they're wary of it. Right. So I think it's to the point that they, they backed, you know, they angel invested their own product to be players in this space. So this is something that the large firms are already responding to. And there, there are definitely individuals out there, smaller individuals, individuals coming out of school and getting funding. IO is one that comes to mind. So to ignore it, I think, is just a further detriment to the erosion of our profession. All of us aren't just going to embrace this, right, and become founders and CEOs of new companies. But enough of us need to keep an eye on it to make sure that our value continues to grow as these different firms and these different organizations begin to spin up.
0: I get excited by the potential that there are different designers out there who are working on projects and they're able to come up with ideas that address specific inefficiencies and create solutions through technology that enhance the work that studios are doing so that is happening a lot and you know i heard adam mention like taking that kind of ownership away from autodesk was one that they named that's dominating the market in this space um you know, these smaller companies have a chance to introduce new technology into the space that's basically changing the way architects are practicing every day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's a good place to end. Thanks, Janine. Tune in next week, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Visit us at practiceofarchitecture.com to find out more about future episodes and the changing nature of practice.
0: We have several ways you can get involved with our growing community. Find us on social media at Practice of Arc. You can also become a member of the POA Lab or join us on Patreon.
1: And if you want to take your career or practice to the next level, Janine and I also consult, provide workshops, and speak regularly on this research. And we would love an opportunity to collaborate with you.
0: This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com.
1: We are also looking for sponsors who want to partner with us in 2021 and beyond. If that's you, please contact me directly at Evelyn at practiceofarchitecture.com.
0: If you like the research we're doing here, please help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple. We appreciate you subscribing on your favorite podcast app.
1: Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing from. Thanks for listening and see you next week.